0: Hello and welcome again to day three of this Mental Health Awareness Week podcast. My name is Sarah Long and I'm a mental health first aid and wellbeing instructor and among other things I work with businesses to help them understand how they can support the mental health of their staff. So today's topic is pretty relevant, living and working in these peculiar times of coronavirus lockdown. Even as we're moving towards loosening some of the restrictions, life is still a long way from business as usual for many of us. Those of us who can are still encouraged to work from home, to lessen the risk to those who can't, and lessen the burden on the NHS from potential infection. If we're returning to our places of work, there may have to be changes. As I write, we're waiting for more details on the proposed risk assessment and certification scheme that is meant to reassure us that we're safe. Whether we'll actually feel safe, of course, is another matter, and a deeply personal one, no doubt, based on our individual risk profile, our beliefs and the level of vulnerability in our families. People in some professions have to face risk to life on a daily basis. They know it's part of their job and they're usually in some way recompensed for that risk. But the dangers are usually visible. If you go in the army, there is a defined enemy. If you're a firefighter, you can see the flames. Facing invisible, unknowable risk when we're going to our usually safe employment is a new kettle of fish for us and it may take some getting used to. So, yes, these are unusual times with specific fears. We have this possible risk to life, this virus, which we know has killed at least 30,000 people so far in the UK. As I write this, sadly, we know it will be more by the time you hear it, even if the death rate is slowing. A virus which some of us don't even notice if we catch it, but which can be severe and needing hospital treatment for up to 20% of us, one in five. And if we find ourselves in ICU, we have a 50-50 chance of coming out alive. Some people seem convinced it's all being blown out of proportion, or even that it's a hoax. Some seem certain that they will be in the 80% of lucky ones, even if they do catch it, even though there doesn't really seem to be any way to know. While there are factors which increase your risk, there are also exceptions where everything was in their favour and they still died. As I have mentioned before, we have an innate risk assessment system, some of us more sensitive than others. We detect the potential danger that coronavirus presents, and we react to it. There's no one right way to act. There is no normal way to be at the moment. Some of us are very anxious. How does fight or flight work against a virus? Perversely, being in high states of stress suppresses our immune system. Fight might be the urge to protect oneself and one's family, which could be behind all the panic buying we saw at the beginning of the lockdown. It might be denial. Refusal to believe that there is such a possibly formidable enemy, or finding other enemies in conspiracy theories and so on. Flight, certainly the urge to hunker down. Freeze, not knowing what to do, what to think. Struggling to concentrate or act. Flop, feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. Sleeping a lot. And it might be that we feel one thing one day and another the next. If we're not finding anything which makes the threat go away, we keep cycling through our options whether we like it or not. We're all dealing with this in our own way, but we're also having to navigate each other while we do it, which is difficult. Sometimes something which makes us feel better or which which feels like the right way to respond to things can really rub someone else up the wrong way or be the exact opposite of what they need. Careful diplomacy is needed if we're not going to end up at each other's throats. Some people have been very keen to say that we're all in this together, which is true in one sense, that we're none of us that we are aware of, immune to this virus in the same way that none of us is immune to the possibility that we might develop mental health difficulties. But it's not true to say that we're all affected in the same way or that we're all exposed to the same risk. Even our experiences of lockdown are going to be different. We can say we're all in the same storm, but some of us are on land, some of us at sea some in luxury liners with staff, some in leaky dinghies, some desperately trying to swim in the tempestuous waves. As we enter a new stage of lockdown, we're having to work out where we are. Can we work from home? Are we essential workers that have to venture out to keep things going and to care for others? Are we having to start considering going back to work, even though we're not classed as essential? Because there's no way to do what we do at home. Or can we not work at all? Are we furloughed? Is our business still closed? Were we not working before anyway, either being at the most vulnerable end of the socioeconomic scale, on benefits or without them, or at the other, most privileged, able not to work or have to worry about how we will get through because we're financially comfortable enough to be able to tide ourselves over? Beyond that first classification of ourselves, there are other factors. Where do we live? Do we have children that need caring for and educating? Do we have a partner to help us or are we alone? If we live with others, do we get on with them? Or is there tension or even violence in our homes? What space do we have? If we share a home with someone else who is also trying to work, is there enough space, enough bandwidth for us both to do what we need to do? Do we have outdoor space? Do we have a car or drive? Or is it more complex and time consuming for us to get our essentials? Our caring responsibilities, our own state of physical or mental health, how supportive or innovative our employers are prepared to be, So many different factors which will shape the experience we're having of this time. So there's no one right way to do things. We'll talk about some of the different possibilities, but know that what is right for one might not be right for another and nothing should be set in stone. Finding the best way through will be trial and error. Things that don't work out are not mistakes. They're lessons helping us to find what works for us. They say up to 49% of us have been working from home in the past few weeks. It's a revolution and one that's about time coming, to be honest. I'm not saying we should all be working from home all the time, but we should certainly be more open to exploring the potential benefit it holds for businesses and staff. Some organisations are ahead of the game, obviously those whose work is more tech related, but often also those based in expensive London or city centre premises. As real estate costs increase, office space is squeezed and many firms reduce the ratio of desks to staff, introducing an expectation that some or all staff will work either at home or out of the office for some of the time. Not everyone enjoys or thrives on working from home, but it can be perfect for others. I've worked on agreeing reasonable adjustments for disabled staff members, people with mental health difficulties or other issues, which mean being in their own environment, not having to deal with a commute, makes them better able to do their job effectively. Even for one or two days a week, the change of pressure or pace can be helpful. There are schools of thought in the design of the workplace of the future which take us far away from being tied to desks to having multi-purpose environments focused on communication and interaction or private pods for concentration but also an expectation that we would have freedom to figure out where we work best for different tasks and giving us the equipment we need to make it work making use of our homes but also libraries coffee shops co-working spaces or even parks where do you write best where do you concentrate best Where do you have your best ideas, where can you focus on figures, where do you have the resources you need, the privacy, the security? Most of us are a long way from that and many of our jobs wouldn't really fit very well but lots of us have at least one aspect of our work which maybe we don't need to be in the office for. And having the flexibility to be at home if we need to be in for a delivery or the gas man or avoiding a stressful commute or just staying home if we're feeling not so great but not sick enough to be off work. It can improve that work-life balance and is shown to make staff more engaged and productive overall, but it requires trust and work and effective management based on outcomes rather than just presence. So some people can really thrive on working from home, but let's get something straight. What many of us are doing at the moment is not really just working from home. Normal working-from-home arrangements are given thought, planned out, and are given our full attention. We should have risk assessments of our workspace and equipment, be provided with tech or furniture even if we need it. It isn't hurriedly organised, thrown at us without preparation. Importantly, it doesn't come with a life-threatening illness snapping at our heels, potentially with sickness of ourselves or loved ones. It doesn't always come with other people trying to work in the house with you, or not trying to work, just passing the time entertaining themselves. And it certainly doesn't usually come with trying to homeschool your older children or stop your younger ones from eating Lego or crawling into the fireplace. We are not working from home. We're at home in a crisis, trying to work, trying to make things work, juggling a varied number of balls, worrying about health, money, our families, the future, the world. So first of all, we need to give ourselves a break and employers, bosses, managers, take that on board. Things might not be as smooth or productive as you would expect them to be in the office. Don't necessarily expect the same, either in terms of workload or time engaged. For everything which isn't optimal, we need to be prepared to compromise. No decent office chair or ergonomic setup. Maybe we can't expect people to sit at their computer as long. Person wrangling childcare and schooling. They may not be able to be there all the time, and they certainly might not be able to respond as quickly. Be reasonable. And if someone has a partner, don't make any sexist or unfair assumptions that the person who doesn't work for you should pick up all the other stuff. We all need to compromise to make this work and not add to the stress we're all already under. It's good to get clarity from people about what their situation is so you know how able they are to make arrangements to meet certain expectations. Be as flexible and reasonable as you can be and where you have to be firm about something, explain why and give people the opportunity to discuss and present any problems they're facing and present alternatives which might solve them for you both. At the best of times, it can be difficult to maintain good boundaries when we're working from home. On the positive side, we can be present for people, attend to the odd chore when we're taking a break, only brush our hair if we've got a video call. And while it's kind of good that instead of dealing with a commute, we can log on an hour sooner if we like, it's easier for the barrier between work and home life to blur, and we find ourselves working longer and longer, checking emails before we go to bed, never quite switching off. And the danger of this is even higher now that we're not really leaving home for much of anything else either. Conversely, we may be finding it harder to find our focus, be able to concentrate and block out all of those other calls on your attention. Children wanting to play mermaids or bake a cake or the call of the Xbox, the washing up, whatever. So finding a way to set clear boundaries can be important. Similarly, territories, if you have others also needing to work, have a defined workspace. If you don't have a separate room to be an office, if like many you're squatting on the kitchen table, take some time at the beginning of your working day to clear away the breakfast things, the salt and pepper, your kids' toys or books and set it up with everything you need for your day. Similarly, at the end of the day, reverse the process. Put away your laptop and notepads and lay the table or get some colouring books out and reconnect with your children. If you're sharing space with someone else who's working, sit down and talk about your needs through the week. It might be that there's only one space that's good for taking calls or online meetings or only one backdrop you're happy to let others in on. It might be that you need to do some printing or spread papers out on the table. Negotiate for who works where when, who keeps an eye on the children or takes a shift going over their maths lessons with them. Structure can be really useful. While the novelty and freedom of being able to work in your pyjamas, eat whenever you like and have the TV on in the background might be nice for a little while, if you find you're struggling to focus or work, drawing up a routine might be helpful. Even though there might be no real need, following your usual routine, getting up at the same time, getting washed and dressed, having breakfast, brushing your teeth, at the very least it will make it easier to get back in the swing of things if we do have to start doing things the old way again. Having a routine can also help define those psychological boundaries and our commuting can do that for us, give us time to wake, shift from home mode to work mode, gradually start to think about the day ahead and what we need to be looking at. Finding ways to do this at home can be tricky, but there are lots of possibilities. Now that we're permitted to go out more than once a day, if you wanted to and felt safe to do so, you could walk to work, or rather go out for a short 10 minute walk around the block and then start work when you get in. Doing the same at the end of the day can be a great refresher and indicate work is done and you're home for the evening. If not going out, other indoor exercises can also serve this purpose. Stretches or something energetic in the morning, yoga or something more relaxing in the evening. Or take half an hour to read. A work-related thing in the morning, something more enjoyable at night. I've mentioned that working at home right now might mean changes to how we do things. It may not be possible to replicate working in the office precisely, or it might take time to develop suitable replacements or workarounds for things we'd like to be able to do. But we may also discover some ways in which things can work better. While some people may miss the speed of face-to-face interactions, we might find that working remotely promotes more thought out responses, or that some people who are usually quiet in meetings feel able to contribute more in virtual meetings, especially if they can contribute via a group chat and not have to speak up themselves. We should give the same consideration to health and safety in the home as we do at work, offer workspace assessments, and if at all possible provide what people need to avoid them developing back problems or RSI from perching on the sofa or typing on a laptop all day. Think carefully about what rules you wish to impose and why. Some people might want to keep to the usual working structure. Others might find that the ability to work for a couple of hours here, then break for an hour or two before resuming, etc. could help them keep fresh or better manage their other responsibilities. Don't overuse Zoom or other online meetings. Now is a good time to think about whether you really need a meeting. What could be done by email or online chat or by jointly contributing to an online document, giving people a longer period of time to research and respond. What you need from them can improve the quality of work sometimes, as well as not adding to video fatigue. That being said, we should make an effort to see each other's faces sometimes to keep our sense of being a team, a work family. Some teams like to do a check-in at the beginning or end of the day. What are we all working on? What issues have arisen today? So people get the option of pitching in with ideas and solutions in the way you might, if you overheard someone talking across the way. Having an ongoing office chat or message stream can also serve this function. Avoid duplication and share knowledge by having an idea what each other's doing, but checking in should be about more than just work. We really need to be able to connect, to have the opportunity to talk about how things are going. I mentioned yesterday that to truly be able to look out for each other's well-being, we need to know each other well enough to spot what is a diversion from normality. And that's difficult, isn't it? Because for the vast majority of us, what is certainly not normal is working from home, dealing with all the stresses and uncertainty that we currently have on our plate. So how do we know what's normal for Dave when he's at home? Does he always look so scruffy or is that a sign he's not doing so well? Is Kate irritable because things are getting on top of her? or because she's just seen the cat knock a vase of flower water all over her clean laundry, but she's in a meeting with the director so can't do anything about it? Is Joe being slow to respond because he's struggling, or because his internet's gone down and he hasn't yet received your email? The only thing we can do is use all of the wonderful communication skills and tools we have at our disposal and ask. Difficult though it might seem at this socially distant time, we need to build and boost our relationships. We need to make an extra effort. It dawned on me the other day that I have no no excuse for not meeting up with some friends I haven't seen for years, in the sense that we've never managed to meet up because we live hundreds of miles apart. But now it's as easy to meet them, virtually of course, as it is to chat with friends who live just down the road. It just takes getting over that initial awkwardness. In order to be able to effectively look after your staff's well-being, you need to be able to ask them about it and they need to feel comfortable talking to you or someone about it. It's good to make well-being a part of any one-to-one or catch-up meeting you have. Make it routine so it's not something you only bring up when you think there's a problem. Ask about someone's family, what they did at the weekend, that kind of thing. Get to know someone so they don't feel uncomfortable or embarrassed to raise anything with you if it does emerge. Mental Health First Aid England launched the My Whole Self campaign in March. It unexpectedly coincided with the beginning of the lockdown, perhaps fortuitously, because now we're seeing much more of each other's whole selves than perhaps we're used to. We're getting an insight into people's family lives, being introduced to cats, dogs, children, iguanas, seeing what their wallpaper's like, what art they have in their houses and what's on their bookshelves. It sparks conversations and connections and laughter. The basic principle of the my whole self idea is that any of us should be able to bring their whole self to work and be valued for it. Not to have to waste energy hiding any part of ourselves or pretending to be other than we are. To be able to be human beings, to share our interests and hobbies and whatever else about our lives that we might either want or need to be acknowledged. Sometimes there might be aspects of our whole selves that aren't usually visible in our work lives, but could at some point be really useful. Joe from accounts is fluent in Swedish. Peter is a coach for a junior football team which might need a new sponsor, someone that was a first aider in a previous role. So opportunities to get to know each other in a more rounded way and boost our team connections are as important as making sure we're all getting our work done. Encouraging workmates to stay in touch, having a shared coffee break with an open video call or space where you can drop in and chat about what's going on, setting up social activities, a weekly quiz or raffle, a shared Spotify playlist, Even if people want meeting outside of work hours to have a shared beer together, or encouraging people to do other virtual communal activities, like doing an exercise class at the same time so you can share each other's pain. Be open to ideas and encourage people to be creative and honest. Leave all channels and methods of communication open, including the option of anonymity, and ask people to tell you what is and isn't working for them. What works for one won't work for all. There'll be some things that please one section of your team which drive others up the wall, which is why flexibility is key, giving things a go. One of the reasons that so many employers have been hesitant to embrace homeworking is that they've assumed it never worked for them. They've never done it before, so it can't be done. Or they've assumed that out of sight means out of mind and that people won't work at all. This coronavirus crisis has forced our hands. If the alternative is no work at all, then people have been prepared to give this homeworking thing a try. IT departments have leapt into action and transformed people's ways of working in the blink of an eye in some organisations. You just have to give permission and encouragement and trust. It might take time to bed in and some tweaking, but if we take the approach that we will give things a try and see what happens, it's surprising how often things work out better than we expected. That's not to say that problems never arise, but if we work on them if and when they do, We might find middle ground or alternative solutions that are still better for all than what went before. We need to be clearer in our expectations, set proper goals and objectives, and make sure people have the resources, training, and support they need to make it work. But if we're all honest and open and clear with each other, there's no reason why we can't really evolve some excellent 21st century working practices to take us forward way beyond the lockdown. We do need to look after ourselves though, They can't just be sitting at the laptop 24-7. We'll talk more tomorrow about what protects and boosts our well-being, but certainly if you're working from home, take breaks. Stretch, get away from the screen, get some exercise. Eat healthily and watch the snacks. It's too easy when the kitchen is just there to overdo the coffee and biscuits. Keep hydrated, get some fresh air every day, even if it's just putting your face out the window for 10 minutes at lunchtime. Talk about what's troubling you and make sure you switch off. Do something each day to relax you, something to distract you, something to amuse you. Those of us who aren't at home, who are still going to work or who are now starting to return, it's a tricky one. The work may not be that much different. It might be busier or a little more awkward. We might be pretty uncomfortable about having to take that risk at the end of the day and the prospect that we might be getting sick or bringing back infection to others in our house. We have to do our best to assure ourselves that we're as safe as we can be in our own actions and also how our employers look after us. New guidelines are being released as to how workplaces should be made COVID safe. Always remember employers have a duty of care to look after the physical and emotional well-being of their staff under the Health and Safety at Work Act. We have the right to refuse to go into a workplace if we deem it to be unsafe. If you aren't confident that everything's being done to look after your well-being, flag it up with your manager, with HR, and hopefully something can be done. In terms of our own perception of risk, there is also the chance that our anxiety will blow things out of proportion. While it's difficult to know what's reasonable, if you're feeling excessively panicked at the concept of going into work, or if you find yourself feeling the need to continually wash your hands or avoid situations, take a step back. Ask yourself why you're feeling that way. Talk to others who you trust about what level of risk they're comfortable with. Talk to your doctor if you're finding yourself unable to do the things you want to be able to do. If you aren't working, if you're furloughed, you might be facing different challenges. Boredom, isolation, greater concern for your financial future, perhaps. Rumours that the furlough scheme will be scaled back or stopped don't help. What will your employer do if that support's removed but there can be no return to work? We can only cross those bridges when we come to them, Well, perhaps it is a good idea to think about and prepare for what we might do if the worst came to the worst. Meanwhile, what do you do with your time? For some, that's no problem. You've got your kids to look after, a million and one box sets to watch, the garden to sort out, the living room to decorate. Maybe you might be volunteering with the NHS or supporting those extremely vulnerable people and getting their food and medicines. Some unbearable gurus online are saying, if you don't come out the other side of this, having set up your side hustle, got in shape and learned ancient Sumerian, then you never lack time, you lack discipline. What a load of baloney. Yes, this is a great opportunity for those of us who find ourselves with unexpected time on our hands to do some of the things we might always tell ourselves we'd really like to do. But it's not just a holiday. It's a time of great stress and worry and concern and that has an impact on us. Even if we don't have household and family responsibilities, we might find that we're too overwhelmed by events. We might find that we haven't got the energy or the focus. We might even get sick. Your mission for this crisis, should you choose to accept it, and let's face it, we don't have much choice, is to survive. To get to the other side still breathing, as healthy as we can be. To keep our loved ones safe, and after that comes our financial well-being. Any other goals and plans are nice to haves. You do find yourself with the mental and physical capacity to try new things. By all means, do. All of us should, if we we can, spend some time thinking about what's important to us. What we're missing and what we're not. What we're enjoying about this time. And similarly, what we'll be glad to say goodbye to if we can. This is, in a sense, a collective trauma. For some, a real physical trauma of risk to life. For some, the trauma of witnessing death. Of trying to save people and not being able to. Of bereavement and loss but for all of us is an enduring trauma of unexpected change, high stress coupled with existential threat. This can and will have an impact. None of us will know how much. It will depend on what other such stress we've faced in our lives. But out of trauma can also come growth. We can develop clearer pictures of our values, of what we think is important, of what we want the rest of our lives to look like. So be open to those thoughts emerging and be prepared to learn from them. I have a great hope that we'll all learn something from this. That it'll be a catalyst for positive change in many aspects of life. That employers will become more innovative, creative, flexible. That we can have a better work-life balance. That schools can become less stressful for our children. That we all slow down a little and learn the value of spending time together. And also that life is too short to carry on making excuses or putting up with things that aren't right. In going back to a more normal life, we shouldn't rush to do everything the same. We should question and evaluate everything and ask if this is something which still needs doing. And if it does, does it need doing like that? We should ask our colleagues and our families what from this time do we want to keep? And what from before do we want to get back? There is a bargain to be made. If we can change the way we travel, we can reduce pollution and help improve a variety of health problems. If we shop local, if local shops and restaurants keep offering flexible retail options and delivery, we can protect our local high street economy. While none of us might have chosen or asked for these events, that doesn't mean we can't accept some of the opportunities for change which have come along. They might even mean we're less vulnerable to similar threats, more able to cope with them without as dramatic an impact on the economy. Tomorrow we'll look at the many, many ways in which we can look after our own mental well-being and boost our own resilience. Resilience can sometimes be seen as a dirty word in workplace well-being. People ask you to be more resilient so that they can carry on treating you badly rather than improving their behaviours. And while that can be how some employers use it, I see resilience as something which empowers. Just as vitamins, fruit and veg might improve our immune system and increase our ability to fight off illness, boosting our resilience helps us stay psychologically well enough to live life the way we want including fighting against unfair treatment or inequality. We can talk about the ability to bounce back from adversity, but resilience also enables to bounce through, to cope with difficult times with less of a negative impact and to bounce forward, to move on and grow and seize opportunities, including walking away from things which are not serving us any longer. I look forward to getting stuck into it with you. Have a lovely evening. Make sure you do something nice to relax.